Hello, everybody. This is Wes Woodbury from Fundamental Games, and I'm here to talk with Danny O'Neill. Danny O'Neill is from Hammerdog Games, and he's going to be describing a Kickstarter journey that he's had recently. Hello, Danny. Hi, Wes. How you doing? Fantastic. So glad I get a chance to talk to you after actually all these years. Uh, for those of you listening, believe it or not, Danny and I know each other back from, what is it, 1996 or 97? I think, it, I think we started around... 95, man. 95. What was the magic set? I remember I kind of broke into magic when I came to that game store. Um, give me one second and it'll come to mind. Uh, you would have come for... I remember... Ice Homelands Age. or... Oh, oh, no, Alliances. Alliances. The Balduvian Horde was like the gem of the day back then. That's right. That's right. Mm. Um, and so uh, Danny was running and working at a comic store called Warp 2, and I was just 16, I think, at the time, and uh, just had no idea what I was getting myself into. Uh, what have you been up to since then, Danny? Wow, it's been a it's been quite a while, Wes. So um, <laughs> I worked I worked with the U at that store for about two years, and um, decided that I wanted to break into the adventure hobby industry. So I literally did a little sit back, did some research and saw that there was a, a path you could take where you went from retail to distribution to manufacturing. And I said, well, that's what I want to do. So yeah. I went and started working for one of our distributors in Calgary called TD Imports. And I worked for them for all of oh, three or four months before I got hired by Alliance Games down in the States, who was the biggest uh, distributor of games probably on the planet. And uh, they hired me to move down to Indiana and become their sales manager. So I was a sales manager for the Midwest of the U.S. and Canada for 20 years. And I just quit that about six months ago to go full time with Hammerdog. That's amazing. Just the experiences you must have gained and just from all that time in such a major industry. Uh, I can't even imagine. It was quite a run and then extraordinarily educational. I, I can't think of a job I would have rather done. Honestly, except for the one you're about to do now. Right. Well, this was always <laughs> pulling and this this was always the reason I took that job in the first place, because right. the, the desire was always to find an outlet for the for my creativity. And uh, this was two birds with one stone. It was irresistible. I had to do it. Yeah, and I remember when you uh, left like way back then after those two years and kind of the, the spirit of the game store disappeared for a bit there uh, because you did have such a drive for gaming and i remember how you ran the tournaments and how you ran D D, and it just um for me it, it showed me that there was life in board gaming and hobbies and um after you left uh, i kind of just dove into a few things here and there and then eventually uh, almost forgot about gaming for a while and it wasn't until the last couple of years where i've made my way back in and just happened to come across you again and seeing some of the successes you've had and um even now going out on your own on your own branch there is still an inspiration so uh, just excited to get a chance to talk to you as the first guest on the Kickstarter journey and, and basically see what you did recently and what you're up to next. Well, thanks, Wes. I mean, that's all super kind. The The truth is it was exciting to hear from you again because, like you said, you were 16. You were just a very young man back then. And uh, whether you realize it or not, um, what you were witnessing was the birth of in-store gaming. Um where, where that all came from was folks like myself back in the mid-90s who were really taking swings at trying to find a way to bring what was essentially the university gamers club experience that I'd had 
into yeah. retail so everybody could experience it. And that's really all I was doing was I was transferring uh, my knowledge from that gaming club. And so you did get to witness that. And so it's super exciting to talk to you decades later and find so, you back in the fold and still interested in the hobby. I mean, that's truly what it's about. That That's yeah. why guys like me do what we do. Absolutely. And and I, I've always loved fantasy from the get-go, and it's fantasy that pulled me back in. But it's uh, it's amazing how much has changed and yet stayed the same uh, in different ways. So And so one of the things we're going to talk about today is about um, a way that you've uh, revitalized part of Dungeons and Dragons. If we look back at your most recently fully funded Kickstarter from um, I think it was earlier or in 2019, and it's called the Grand Temple of Jing. And he'd actually done this before for Pathfinder, but I think there was so much demand for it that you brought it back as a D&D full campaign book. And the description of it says that it's a mega dungeon designed in the spirit of old school RPG adventures, but with modern rules and sensibilities. And um, anything can be found and anything can be done in this amazing dungeon. And so when I was looking at it, uh, it obviously is a fantastic way to experience Dungeons and Dragons. And you were able to raise, uh, looks like almost $40,000 US and um, a total backer count of over 500 backers. So it was really cool to see how that uh, played out. And what I have here is just curious about um, what what made you establish the goal that you had and uh, how did you feel about the final results of that one? Well, as you said, that was a revamp of the Pathfinder version. The Pathfinder version was done in, oh man, 2013? 2012 yeah. eek and um the idea then was of course pathfinder had a, a license that made it very easy to use their material mm-hmm. of course i grew up on dungeons and dragons so the grand temple of jing was essentially designed in first edition um when i went to produce it the the pathfinder rule set was perfect for it now, this was when Bestiary 3 had just come out, so it didn't have a bunch of expansion creep yet. And it seemed perfect, but the whole time I was doing it, my heart was still in Dungeons & Dragons. All yeah. the ideas yeah. were born of D&D games. So I had always wanted to do it in D&D, but D&D just wasn't popular enough. When the 5th edition of D&D came out, and I was I was at Alliance, I could see its sales, and its sales were exploding. It just made perfect sense to make the conversion. And when I went to do the Kickstarter, of course, when I saw the level of activity of other Kickstarters, I, I felt pretty good about my goal. I believe I put up 10000 for Jing. I'm not entirely sure right now. Um, yeah, it feels was, like uh, it was an initial ten grand goal, and we hit it pretty quick within a few days. Um, and then like a lot of Kickstarters, uh, it went bowl shaped really fast. There's so, always that. Yeah. There? Yeah. So, so when you ask me how I feel about it, I, I feel like the length of the Kickstarter was two days of bliss followed by, uh, somewhere in the realm of 20 days of angst. Yeah. And then the last couple of days were glory because of that's yeah. when you're on the other side of the bowl. And all your followers are coming now in and clicking buy, 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 where they made you wait 30 days to know that they yeah, were going to exactly. click that for you to know that they were going to click it. Right. So. So that's I am. I was a little underwhelmed. I actually was shooting for 50,000. Now we did yeah. 50,000 when you add in backer kit. 
but I wanted 50 on the Kickstarter. And I thought that given other Kickstarters in its day, that we would have done at least that. So honestly, a little disappointed, though, completely pleased to have funded that project. Yeah, and like you said, those last three days when I was looking at the trend, uh, it was just over 5,000 in the first two days, but over 20,000 in the last three days. So that must have been almost like a, a saving moment right at the end, even though it didn't hit that 50. It's just to go from 20 to 40 in a span of three days has uh, got to have been a sigh of relief. Right, right. And that's, I mean, you are clinching until that happens. And and that upswing is pretty normal in a Kickstarter, to be completely honest. And I was hoping for it, but we actually hit a couple of things right in those last days. And so everything synergized and and we pulled that one out of the fire. I really I really have to stress, I didn't need this one to do 50,000. I just yeah. thought it was a reasonable goal. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so for anybody that is listening and wondering how that bell curve works, it can be excruciating painful, especially if you have that 30 day campaign, because there's not a ton you can do in those middle 20 days unless you have some really intense interviews or uh, cons that you're really demoing hard at. Um, otherwise, that slump is almost guaranteed. And you can look at the trend of almost any Kickstarter and see that. So uh, definitely not alone there. Right. right. And once you did fund, I mean, uh, once you hit that um, minimum goal that you wanted, there's always the expectation of stretch goals. And your campaign actually finished off with uh, quite a few. I think you had uh, 23 out of 24 stretch goals unlock, which is phenomenal. Um, and so of those, like, what was your plan going in? Did you have a, a already staggered idea of what your stretch goals were going to be? Or did you kind of reveal them one at a time? What was your methodology? Uh, to be honest, we did a little of both um, because you have you plan. Hmm, let me try that again. <laughs> it was both because you you have to plan for multiple contingencies. You have to plan for if it takes off great. You have to plan if it crashes hard and you have to plan for the normal bowl shaped Kickstarter. So yep. I in a spreadsheet, I'll make plans for all three contingencies. And every now and then I will think that I have this killer idea for a stretch goal that in the middle of the campaign, I realize is a total dog. And <laughs> at the same time, I might have an idea that I thought was just, uh, it's just a throwaway. We'll put it up there that I then suddenly realize is a fantastic stretch goal. And in that particular campaign, that was dead dog dungeon. So right. we were holding back dead dog dungeon and I thought, Oh, maybe I should go get a little piece of art for it. Um, Andrea Butera came in and did a piece of art for me super fast, and we yep. got it up there, and that stretch goal fell in a day. Uh, and it was 5000 if I'm not mistaken. But whatever it was, whatever stretch goal that was a part of, I was just completely thrilled that people jumped on it so quick. Uh, and now that stretch goal turns out to be my favorite part of the campaign because I wrote Dead Dog Dungeon, <laughs> and I love it so much. Um, and is so, that where you get to be uh, an animal for a small part of the game? Is that what it is? Uh, it's when you have a TPK. So the Grand Temple of Jing, the design is a mega dungeon mixed with concepts from computer games, mixed with concepts yeah. from the role-playing game Paranoia. So the concept is when you die, as long as you've entertained Jing, he will resurrect you, um, which oh. you will soon realize maybe that's not what you wanted because you can't get out of his temple. Well, this is for experienced players or people yeah. who've been to the temple a couple of times, or people that just like dogs and cats. And what it is is when you TPK, Jing resurrects you as a pack of dogs. 
Now there's right. an option to resurrect you as a pack of cats as well. And you are nothing but animals who have been awoken. So you have your intelligence, wisdom, and charisma. You have nothing else. You have no gear. And yeah. you go out there and you run this little gauntlet. And it's dogs versus cats. So it's just too much fun. That's um, great to hear. But the reason that that one did so well was right at the same time there was a different Kickstarter of cats with backpacks and gear and yeah, dungeons. Yeah, I remember that. So it was, was tongue-in-cheek. Right. It was tongue-in-cheek against these other games where you play dogs and you play cats. And Well, you yeah. can do that in the Temple of Jing. Awesome. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting how some of those twists in the hobby, whether it's in D&D or just RPGs in general, where they just um, turn in, uh, I can't remember the term for it, uh, um, anthropomorphic <laughs> yep. style gaming is just kind of taken off in different uh, wavelengths. So it's cool that you could incorporate that as a surprise stretch goal. And if you could provide one key learning from a stretch goal perspective, what would it be? Well, just that you need them. It is, uh, it is built into human psychology to reach for more. And so when you're designing a Kickstarter, don't bother designing a Kickstarter that you don't have really cool stretch goals for. Now, yeah. some are not conducive to it. If you're doing a, uh, a Kickstarter for art, you're not going to have a whole bunch of tchotchkes. But the whole point of the Grand Temple of Jing is to mimic the search reward mechanism. So, yeah. in, I mean, the Kickstarter mimics the game. And, and that sort of meta aspect is what the Grand Temple of Jing is even all about. And I, I am all about the meta. And when I realized that Kickstarter rewards were just like giving people a treasure for opening a chest or finding something or achieving a goal, uh, it was I knew it was a match made in heaven. So don't do a Kickstarter without really good stretch goals in mind. Yeah, and you may have a dozen planned out, but you don't necessarily have to reveal them all at the beginning because, you, it, like you said, it can be an Easter egg hunt. And, and one of the ones I did, it was reveal three, and as they got two of them, the next three got revealed. And it's kind of interesting how people respond when they suddenly see something new on the page. That's like, like you said, opening a new door and uh, having a surprise and a reason to come back to your page. Right. If I could say one thing about Kickstarter customers is that they're all different shades. They're all different varieties. You really have to get yourself into the mindset of thinking that there's about 10 different customers out there that are looking at your Kickstarter and they're all motivated by different things. And one of them is motivated by seeing something fresh and new every day or every few days. So if you're catering to that person, you will win them. There you go. Excellent. Um, and when it comes to marketing, here's another huge part of it. I mean, you, you made your funding goal, you got the stretch goals, you've got backers on your side, but in order to get to that point, you must have had to do something in terms of marketing. So without going into too much detail on costs, uh, what would you say were the most valuable forms of marketing that you did to help your game succeed? Just two or three of them. Uh, there is only two things that we saw make any difference, and that was uh, Reddit. We did some Reddit posts that cost us nothing, and a couple yep. of those took off, and our previous Kickstarters. So we had built goodwill with our previous two Kickstarters, the Dread House and the Grand Temple of Jing, and right. that audience was therefore ready for us. We actually spent marketing with uh, or marketing money with two influencers and tracked the impact of those influencers, and it was almost negligible. So wow. in fact, that Grand Temple of Jing we spent less than $1,000 in total marketing. Yeah. 
So just just having that prior audience built up, having that trust and loyalty goes a long way. Trust and loyalty. And then, of course, it was a superstar mega dungeon. So when I have uh, eight guys with their own audiences, uh, <laughs> they just send a tweet and all of a sudden I have eight audiences looking at me. And yeah, that was that was built in. I mean, that was planned. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's definitely one thing I did notice because near the top of your page, you've got those uh, kind of superstars of D&D names or, or of that fantasy genre. I mean, I saw um, Ed Greenwood in there. I saw um, Monty Cook in there, Skip Williams. So just having those names on your page at all, knowing that they're affiliated with you, can go a long way to um, just give a professional an understanding that this is real instead of this is just somebody's uh, imagination at work type of thing. That's right. You you are fighting for credibility and credibility. Uh, yeah, and having those guys up was insta credibility. So with Jonathan Tweet, Monty Cook, and Skip Williams, I basically had the three guys who wrote the third edition of Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. In uh, Ed Greenwood, I've got the man who wrote Forgotten Realms. In Jim Ward, I've got a first edition TSR guy uh, who wrote Metamorphosis Alpha. So. What I was really trying to do was get somebody from every edition at that point. Um, and those were the guys who were available. I, yeah. I, I really wish Gary and Dave were still around with us because I could have got them into the Grand Temple. Yeah, and that, and that just goes to show that that experience with Alliance Games and what you've built for your own credibility, that they're willing to support you. That's fantastic. So what you do early on in your career and your, your gaming hobby uh, can extend uh, down the road by far. That's correct. Uh, I think the the luckiest thing for me was to be able to come into the industry at one of its changing times. And that was the change from the old guard at TSR to the new guard. Um, that left a lot of people who were former TSR employees looking for work. And uh, it also was the the jumping point for D&D where D&D third edition exploded in sales that brought a lot of attention to the game. When it did so, I was kind of well positioned to uh, to start farming talent. It sounds a little crass, but that's a technical <laughs> term. You're farming talent. Yeah, yeah, just uh, building it up. Absolutely. Yeah. And throughout your campaign, you, like I said, you had 500 backers, 165 comments, and so people were involved with it for sure. Uh, but you also had 14 updates during your campaign. And so how do you feel, what kind of information do you provide in an update and what kind of value do you think the backers get out of it? Okay, so I'm going to go out on a limb here and, and I'm going to say that I do buck a lot of trends because I don't always believe what I'm hearing sometimes. So in the early days of Kickstarter, updates were really critical because nobody knew anybody um, and everybody was worried about being ripped off. So so updates were a way of showing that you weren't running away with the money. Um, yeah. and, then, and then what came out was a class of customer who wanted constant updates and said that if you weren't constantly updating, then you were, you were doing something nefarious and they were running around uh, saying Kickstarter was going to die and all of this kind of stuff. So I've come down to three types of updates that I do now as a result. I... I don't like letting people hang on for a really long time, but sometimes that's just a natural thing in the Kickstarter. So yeah. I will update them when I have a big news, especially a delay. But if I get big news, I get a prototype of a miniature. 
um, something exciting. Uh, maybe I see the page layout for the first time, something that I know is going to energize um, or that I better tell them now on on a delay, an unplanned delay. Jing has an unplanned delay because yep. of an issue with layout um, where I tried to force layout, not the person, the layout of the book to be a particular way. Mm-hmm. And it didn't work. And <laughs> we had to revamp. Um, yeah. So it's important to tell people about that. There is a whole class of customer that expects delays in every Kickstarter, but there's a new breed of customer coming in, especially for D&D that doesn't. And, and they don't understand why it's not delivered on the day that you said it yeah. was. So I update them on that. Number two, I give a spotlight where I might feature a particular item in the Kickstarter. So I like to do that when it's time to do a deep dive. For Jing, for example, I might... I might do a deep dive on Dead Dog Dungeon. I kind of already did a spotlight on it, but uh, where yes. I pull it out and I say, look, this is what it's about, and this is why I want you to be excited about it. It's really good. And then the third one is just the check-in. When you have no news and you have no spotlight, you're just saying, we're still here. And uh, I'll do that on a holiday, of course, for Christmas or something like that. So yeah. up- updates can be very critical depending on who you are, and who, how much your customer base knows you and trusts you. Once they know you and trust you, you can reduce your updates. Most people actually don't read them. And, and what I learned very early on was even if I ask a, a heart, a heart to heart question in an update, I'm only going to get two or three responses. So yeah, it's so clear that five people just go, we don't. Sorry. Sorry, Wes. What was that? Oh, sorry. Like you said, like out of 500 people, you, you might get five actual comments and you might only get, you know, 50 readers. It's hard to tell exactly what kind of percentage of people are looking at what you spend the time to create. That's correct. Yeah. And, and you will find that, um, it's okay. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's okay. It'll be the same five people and that's okay. <laughs> um, as long as again, you recognize that that's one of your, say, 10 kinds of customers. You're catering to that type of customer. You're going to keep them uh, loyal, and they're going to be very well behaved. And I hate to say that too, because we don't like <laughs> to think of what badly behaved customers, but they absolutely exist in Kickstarter land. And they're the ones that are most likely to come back for the next Kickstarter if they're treated the right way during the one they're in now. That's right. That's right. I, I think that Kickstarter has a hard time with the concept of service. Um, people don't see how you're going to service them in the same way as, say, going to a restaurant or a theater or something like that. And so anything you can do to show that you are going to continue to serve them even after you've gotten their money, you're building that trust and they're going to they're going to take that with them to your next Kickstarter. Yeah. And in talking about Kickstarter, like um, you've like we've talked about, you've been in the industry quite some time. You've got a, a website and a business called Hammer Dog Games. Um, what is it that you like most about Kickstarter that makes you come back to it to launch campaigns like Jing or like uh, the upcoming one for Denoa? Right. So this is this is another example of me putting myself on a limb um, because I'm going to be talking against a group of people that I respect very well, and that is the distributors. Yeah. But what happened is in the early in the early 2000s like 2001 2002 there was an explosion in the marketplace of game products lord of the rings was popular harry potter was popular third edition came out and 
Pokemon came out, Yu-Gi-Oh came out. And it, it was really this massive explosion of high quality products that had never touched our industry before. And so the distributors um, were caught kind of flat footed at the sheer volume of product coming in. And third edition was the number one culprit. So when third edition came out with the open game license, pretty much everybody and their dogs started putting out adventures. And there was no way for the distributors to know in advance which one was going to be good and bad. And yeah. so in the in the role of being a gatekeeper, they started to fail. We started to fail. Products that shouldn't have gone to market went to market. Uh, products that should have gone to market started getting axed. And so when the when what's called the D20 glut happened, that means there was so much D20 product <laughs> coming out weekly that the yeah. retailers started to scream. Then the distribu uh, the distribution tier became very harsh gatekeepers and started to close the door to products that probably should have gone to shelf. That then became a sort of a winning strategy. And I'm not just talking about Alliance. I'm talking about all the game distributors where yes. they just started to focus on top sellers. Well, that makes total sense. I, I hate to say it this way, but if you're going to make $5 million selling Pokemon and you're going to make $500 selling this third party publisher's adventure, which one should you focus on? Right. Yeah. So, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's just straight numbers and I don't blame distribution for it. But the reality is there weren't enough people in the position of gatekeeping to make sure the gatekeeping was accurate. So along comes Kickstarter and I realize that Kickstarter is going to bypass the retailer gatekeeping and the distributor gatekeeping. You're going to go straight to the consumer. And first I thought that was terrible. And then I realized, no, it was just another avenue for publishers to get their games to customers and customers to get the games they want from publishers without having to go through layers of gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. So that was that. Um, to be honest, I called up Monty Cook. And I had never spoken to him before. And we sat there on the phone. I can remember being in my car on the side of the road talking to Monty. And I'm telling him everything I know about stretch, well, not stretch goals, but things that could be stretch goals and, and how I had been coaching these manufacturers to build tchotchkes. <laughs> Give, yeah. All you need is a new magic card and you'll get people to a tournament. All you need is a, is a new button and you'll get people to play War Machine. Um, and we were doing that and how, man, doesn't this just fit Kickstarter perfectly? And by the time we were off the phone, he was off to make Numenara and I was off to make the Grand Temple of Jing. To yeah. be fair, he was already making Numenara, but we were just like, yes, this is going to work. And then I think he hit like 300,000 with Numenara, something wow. like that. And, and back then that was a, a lot like there, there's campaigns now that do millions, but that was unheard of back then, right? Absolutely. And and he was one of the, if I'm not mistaken, it was the first or one of the first ever Kickstarter picks in the tabletop uh, industry. So yeah, that yeah. launched his company and he was able to go forward. So the reason I like Kickstarter so much is it bypasses the gatekeeping and it says to the fans, do you want this? And if they say, yeah, then you say, great. Hey, retail, hey, distribution, I will make this for you too, because I now know that I have an audience. Yeah, and I came across it completely by accident. Like honestly, when um, 
when I came across Kickstarter, I had no idea that it was that easy, easy being a, a tough word, but um, that's that there was that way to get into the business. I always thought, you know, it's, it's got to be impossible to compete with or even get your foot in the door with games like D&D or Magic or uh, board games in general. And then when I just discovered just through some random source that you could actually just put your game out there and see if people liked it and then actually fund it based on them prepaying you. Uh, the concept blew my mind and that's that's what got me started and I was it was very interesting to see a year and a half later when I discovered you that you'd already done a couple of kickstarters like wow <laughs> honestly totally out of the loop and um and now I absolutely love the format I think there's a lot of uh, variation and you know it as well as I do when a company like come on is making a game compared to an independent publisher just the complete difference in what's being offered but the fact that both parties can still make a game that people will back is pretty amazing. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and a, a big recognition for people was um, the fact that these customers are buying products that they don't necessarily play, uh, that they buy games in the same way that book lovers buy books. <laughs> they anticipate getting to it. They anticipate playing it or reading it, and they don't always. And so that's where the formula changed, where before we would think, and I'm very serious about this, we would think, how many war games does a guy want to own? And then we later found <laughs> yeah. out infinite, <laughs> where, yeah. you know, in, in the 80s, it was clear that it wasn't infinite. In the 90s, it was clear that it wasn't infinite. But in the 2000s, when the stigma about being a gamer disappeared because of Big Bang Theory and all these other things, when that stigma disappeared, I just saw people leaning into their hobby like I'd never seen before. And now it is extraordinarily common to go to a person's house and they show you their 100 board game collection. Yeah, yeah, you see them all lined up on the Calic shelves or on uh, posts on Facebook or Twitter, and it's just astounding. Well, they're, they're, they're converting spare rooms to game rooms now, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And in, in my day, I would have been called a crazy person for having a game room and now they're spending five thousand dollars just on the perfect table <laughs> right <laughs> no that is, that is very true and what i was uh, uh there's something that i was just thinking about there that you you brought to my attention um oh the, like the concept that if you were to go out um with some friends to an expensive dinner you might spend two hundred dollars just for that one dinner for that one day and you're going to digest it and it's gone. And that concept can actually be related to some board games now. That's how legacy games got created. And that's how people are buying these left and right is that you can just buy, enjoy it a couple of times and then move on to the next thing. And um, that's what gives hope to anybody that's making games is that maybe the game won't be a greenfield or be around forever, uh, but at least they will have their one shot and their game will be in people's hands. And, and that's what's uh, another hopeful thing about this cool um, Kickstarter event that we have going on here well right i think i think we have the luxury in our society of clipping things off our bucket list and one one of the biggest things of my generation was to follow your dream and so i had basically you know my my education was coming from baby boomers and they were telling me you know stick it to the man <laughs> go find your own path <laughs> Um, you know, travel the world, do things your way. And the, the supposition was that if I didn't do those things, I had failed. So yep. 
when I started to go into the adventure hobby industry and I saw how low the barriers to entry were, I said, I've got to do this because at least I'll, I can knock it off my bucket list. I can be very happy. And I, right. I will guarantee that that is the drive of 90% of the designers today. There is not enough money in this industry for everything that is being produced. But if I make a game and I make 2,000 copies and I sell those out, and three years later, some guy says to me, hey, I played your game. It was awesome. I'm on cloud nine. <laughs> and I yes. don't come down for a long time. And that's really what a lot of the drive has become for people. Kickstarter gave you the opportunity to make your dreams come true. So, I mean, there are other crowdfunding platforms. Don't get me wrong. We just happen to be talking right. about Kickstarter. But that's where things became irresistible. And... um Today, when you're seeing companies coming out and, and knocking it out of the park with 100,000 plus Kickstarters, you really have to say, wow, where did this audience come from? And the truth is, they were always there. They were just being gatekept. It's a fantastic perspective, and I love how you've seen it grow from absolutely its humble beginnings to, to what it is now, because I, I don't have that perspective, and, and I love the fact that you've seen where it came from and where it is now and that you're still part of it. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you for that. I, I will say real quick, you mentioned Seamon there. there yes. Are, there are companies like Seamon who looked at Kickstarter in a completely different way than how I looked at Kickstarter. I had to look at it as a pre-selling avenue. Right. Yeah. That's right. And that's what I wanted to say. There's an investment and then there's a pre-sell component and where both are important. There are companies that are only doing pre-sell. They have the game already done when the Kickstarter comes out because they have a full R&D team to make it. Exactly, um, yeah. Smaller company like myself, we're fighting to get the budget to make the game. So um, just want to point that out to the, your audience and make sure that they understand that when they go to the big guys, the big guys actually don't need your money. <laughs> yeah. They're totally fine. They've already made the product. You should be looking at the littler guys. So if you see a small company make a cool miniature game, Maybe back then, Simon's stuff will still be around six months from now. Yeah, and it will be massively distributed whether it's uh, backed or not because they've already built in that. That's right. And so I know one of the exciting things that is happening right now is you've launched, as you talked about, an entirely new campaign setting. Can you tell me a little bit about what's going on right now with Denoa? Sure, sure. Denoa is basically an extension of what I've been doing already. So when you look at the Grand Temple of Jing, this is a book that is part setting, part adventure. There's actually, I think you've got to slog through 50 pages of the Grand Temple of Jing before you get to the first level um, because it's built as a mega dungeon, but also a meta dungeon that you can break apart and rearrange. It's like a toolbox. I yeah. sort of did the same thing with the Dread House. The Dread House is a whole bunch of, of setting material up front and then 19 adventures. And you can play those adventures through that setting. Denoa is the same concept. It's got a campaign setting in the beginning, and then it's got a whole bunch of adventures to play in that. There's multiple adventure paths, but I wanted to go a step further, so this is a living campaign. I figured that nobody really wanted to slog through hundreds of pages of a campaign setting. I know I don't. Yep. So instead, I'm going to give the campaign setting piece by piece as you explore it. You actually start extraordinarily restricted. You can only be a human farmer level zero to start but on every adventure you are going to unlock certain content so by your second major adventure you run into dwarves 
now you can play a dwarf. And so this entire world evolves as you adventure through it. And that's the basic concept of it. And is that unlocked by in paper by the dungeon master, or is that unlocked online through digital content, or how are you managing that? We're doing everything we can. So we've got World Anvil support where certain things will get released through World Anvil. But yep. we're developing a integrated app, a fully integrated app for this. And that app will have a lore feature to it that's going to allow you to download new content. Now, when I'm talking about new content, there's two types. There's exposition content, which is just news and rumors and information. And then there's crunch content, which is the rules, new character classes. I should say character builds, uh, new sub races, uh, new magic styles, things like that. Right. So mm -hmm. if if we get to our mid goal stretch goals. That app will have a full functioning character generator in it, and content will easily be updated through that. If we don't, then we'll have to go traditional PDF, but all of that stuff is bundled into the book that comes out later in the year. So to add one component to this, this is going to have an enhanced organized play where you're going to go into a store or a con or even play at home, and what happens in your story feeds up to us through your app, and we use that yeah. to shape the story so there's a certain amount of shaping that we get to do before that book comes out. So fantastic. I love that, that living world concept that what you do with your people may have an influence on a game that other people are going to play. That's that's the whole MMORPG experience built into D&D, &D, which is pretty cool. I don't think that's been done before, at least not that I'm aware of. Well, yeah, living campaigns exist, but not in this respect. And that's why we're calling it enhanced. Um, in other words, people like Alderac Entertainment have done living campaign with Legend of the Five Rings. They did it with a card game, where what happened yeah. in card games... Yeah, I remember that. I've, I've listened to that. Yeah, yeah. and that's, that's great stuff. We're looking for something where you perform actions at the table, and those actions might be immediately important to people down the road. So the example I always use is clues. Even though this isn't the greatest example, there might be a major mystery that this adventure is attempting to tackle and you're learning the pieces one by one. You're feeding them up through the app so that people can figure out what the mystery is um, or, or translating a scroll or figuring out um, the recipe for something, a, a spell, anything. Yeah. So it's, it's a communal storytelling method that I don't think has been tried before. That's pretty pretty awesome, and um, you've got some early support there, and I know you've got some other things planned for it. So, um, actually, I think by the time this airs, your campaign will still be live. So, if anybody's interested in that, I'll make sure I put a link to it. Uh, but it's it's just awesome to see you continue on the D and D journey. And is this Pathfinder compatible as well? Uh, no, it's not. Not this time around, <clears throat> yeah, because so is... Pathfinder is switching from first to second right now. The waters oh, okay. are a little too muddy for us. So. Yeah. Straight Basis. 5e? Yeah. So, yep. Straight 5e, and we yes. hope for conversion down the road. That's always something we can do. Awesome. Very good. And uh, so I know we've talked quite a bit about uh, the, some of the impacts you've had on the hobby already. Um, at this point, what is it that you want to be remembered the most in this hobby, and why is that? Yeah, <laughs> this this is a tough question, Wes. Um <laughs> It essentially speaks to ego. So um, if my ego were to have its way, 
I would want to be remembered as the guy who for 20 years at Alliance uh, fought for the small voices. I was the guy who wanted to make sure when when the gatekeeping started that not all the little guys were getting squeezed out the bottom. I wanted to make sure that as the industry grew, that the stores who were only producing low levels of sales weren't squeezed out. I really believe in this industry and I really believe in this hobby. And I really wanted people to find a way to continue to work together like they had when I started working in the industry, as opposed to kind of where it is now, where we've let some sharks in, excuse me, we've let some sharks into the pool and uh, the industry has changed. So when I began, everything was handshakes. Everything was pay it forward. And now. We're into a little bit of backstabby culture and we must be number one at your expense culture. And I know that that's natural in a capitalist society. But I tried very hard to make sure that that the gatekeepers understood that innovation happens in the small companies, not the big companies. And that lots of small retailers are more important sometimes than a few big retailers. So that was what I was always expending my energy on. Um and that's very hard to get recognized for. Nobody's going to see you do that. So if right. my ego were to have its way, that would be what it would want. Just the recognition that there are people in the background fighting the good fight. Yeah, and it's that kind of passion and that kind of energy that um, I was so thrilled when you were willing to come on the show and just uh, being willing to chat with me back and forth. It, it proves to me that you do have that belief because uh, just to answer a random text from a guy that you haven't talked to for years to answer questions about the industry and about publishing and about um, whether it's D&D content or, or board game creation, uh, it's just awesome that you still care that much, whether it, it's just some guy who's doing something for a few hundred dollars instead of hundreds of thousands of dollars. So. Um, really, really, I think you, you have made a mark in many different ways. You've definitely impacted me. And I'm sure over the years, if you continue on with the hobby, with what you're doing, um, that, that will continue. Very kind words. Thank you so much, Wes. Uh, so maybe to take something a little bit lighter, just learning a little bit about you before we wrap up here. Um, do you play a lot of board games or are you mainly deep dive into RPGs? Um, well, that's the thing, bud. When you start working in the hobby, uh, in your hobby, you back away from the playing component. So I don't play a whole bunch of anything anymore, uh, but yeah. I play a decent amount of board games. You can ask me questions about board games. Right. And so what is your favorite type of game, whether it was a is it, is it board, board game or role playing game or is it um, a different type? Well, I actually have favorites in all the categories. So I'll say it to you this way. The games of our industry are broken into four general categories, board games, miniature games, card games, role-playing games, right? So I have favorites in each of those categories. And, uh, you know, if I was to play role-playing, it would be D&D all the way. Pathfinder, super close second, though, because I love the crunch, love the crunch of Pathfinder. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, I play Magic. That's my favorite card game. Um, Yeah. And uh, for board games, I'm really pretty much an area control kind of guy. I like uh, war style board games. I like dice. I like mm, I like throwing dice, Wes. <laughs> I am not. Have I got a game for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, like um, I, I don't play abstract board games, even though I invented a four player chess game. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, um, 
I, I can't stand them in general. So I play things like Talisman or uh, Axis and Allies and sort of older games that I'm familiar with. Titan, fantastic game, Titan. Great. What, and what is your favorite theme of game? My favorite theme? Oh, just, you know, anything with a fantasy component, pretty much. It's got to yeah. be fantasy something. I, I am I am a huge, huge medieval fantasy nerd. It it is my jam. I'll play a, I'll play a sci-fi. I'll play a war. But you're gonna get me to the table with uh, a fantasy game every time. Yeah, I'm definitely the same way. And um, I, there's games I've played, whether it's uh, Alhambra or um, uh, Castles of Burgundy, those kind of worker placement or abstract games. But fantasy always drives me back, and that's where I have the most fun for sure. And that's why that's that's what I'm creating too. So yeah, uh, love that. What's your favorite player count? Have you ever tried solo games? Do you like duels or do you like kind of two to four or five player games? So I, I will tell you that the first solo game that I can remember was called Chainsaw Warrior, um, which was put out by Game Designers Workshop in like, I don't know, 86, maybe something like that. And so I pushed because of that game, I tried to push manufacturers in the adventure hobby industry to make solo games for years i'm very excited to see that again it's the small guys the small guys on kickstarter that tend to put solo games out or or a game that can be played solo now of course there's always war games you could play solo that is boring but no i'm a social guy i'm a four plus player guy i want people around the table um even when we play magic uh my buddies and i we're gonna have five to eight people around the table we we it's just better that's why you play games (laughs) well i don't mean playing simultaneously necessarily you can play commander with five but i just mean being all together playing the same game is far more interesting to me than a head-to-head in a quiet space where we're we're trying to beat each other and see if we're you know, able to crush each other's strategies. I, I find that terribly boring. Gotcha. And uh, cha- what did you call that? Chainsaw Warrior? Chainsaw was that inspired Warrior. by like? Was that inspired by Ash from Evil Dead? That I just put that picture right in my head. The guy with the chainsaw uh, on his. <laughs> um, you're gonna you're gonna be right in that same era. Yeah, I'm not sure if they were if they were uh, inspired by that or not, but right. it was a trope back in that day. Yeah. Yeah. And it certainly inspires the imagination. Yeah, yeah, and seriously, look it up. It was a fantastic game and almost impossible to beat. There you go. And that's a good sign of a solo game. If you're going to play solo, you don't want to win that often. Otherwise, you're just not going to pull it out. It's too easy. Yep. Great. Well, Danny, I I really want to thank you for joining me today. Um, You've been a tremendous uh, just source of knowledge and some of the things that you talked about just to blow me away what you know and what you're willing to share. And uh, I really hope you all the best success with your current Kickstarter and whatever else you have going on in the future with Hammer Dog Games and um, other campaigns. And of, of course, Denoa, which is live right now. Our discussion, I hope, can help inspire and educate some of the other game designers out there, those uh, small independent game designers that you're so fond of, and hope that they will help us grow the library of amazing games and, and keep that um, evolution of games, as you talked about, um, and innovation coming our way. So. Thank you very yep. much. No problem. I'm counting on them. I'm counting on you, Wes. You are the next generation, bud. So happy to help you in any way I can. Thanks so much for this opportunity and good luck with everything you're doing, including that uh, dice chucking game you're coming out with. What's that called? Uh, 
It's it's called uh, Die in the Dungeon. I'm planning for that one a little bit later this year, and and it's all about. I think it's it's coming and coming with three sets of polyhedral dice. So if you want to throw dice, you're going to throw a lot in that game. Yeah, sweet. All right, all the best with that. Wonderful. And for those of you listeners out there, if there's one thing that you can do to learn more about Kickstarter while still encouraging fellow creators that may also be listening, it's to go on Kickstarter right now and just back something that catches your eye today. Whether it's a dollar or two dollars or a whole game, that's just um, can be profit for the project, but more so it's inspiration and gives you visibility to their progress and updates, which will make you a better designer yourself. So uh, for anybody listening, thanks for listening to um, Danny's journey today, and I sure hope you come back for some more. Take care. 